Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Members from both parties continue to criticize each other over immigration policies. That's as some Republican governors relocate illegal immigrants to sanctuary jurisdictions. President Biden notching a win, averting the railway strike amid a series of transportation woes, including in the air and on the roads. Chinese firms with ties to the Communist Party have been buying up U.S. farmland, some of it near military installations. But the administration appears to dismiss concerns about it. Russia issues a warning to the U.S. They say if America supplies Ukraine with longer-range missiles, it would become a direct party in the conflict, and Russia says it would defend its territory. Illegal immigration continues to be a hot topic today. Members from both parties are criticizing each other's policies, and a coordinator for a homeless shelter in Martha's Vineyard says they can't handle the new arrivals. President Biden spoke at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Gala in Washington on Thursday night. He said Republicans who are relocating illegal immigrants to Democrat-led cities are using human beings as props, and that Democrats have a process in place to manage immigrants at the border. We're working to make sure it's safe and orderly and humane. Republican officials should not interfere with that process by waging a politi- these political stunts. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis doesn't seem to agree. Earlier on Thursday, he said that the president should do his job and secure the border. We are not a sanctuary state, and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. DeSantis added that Democrat leaders were proud to have sanctuary jurisdictions until they have to handle what he calls a small fraction of what border towns deal with every day and a homeless advocate in Martha's Vineyard, an upscale Massachusetts island where DeSantis sent planes of illegal immigrants, reportedly said they will have to eventually move somewhere else. The homeless advocate said they don't have the services to take care of 50 people and certainly can't provide housing for them. Also on Thursday, the White House accused DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott of breaking the law. There's a process of taking in migrants. There's a process that is in place. And what they are doing is a legal stunt, is a, is a, is a political stunt. Governor Abbott later on Thursday replied to the accusations from D.C. His office reportedly told Fox News these migrants willingly chose to go to Washington, D.C., having signed a voluntary consent waiver available in multiple languages upon boarding that they agreed on the destination. His office also pointed out how the Biden administration also flew illegal immigrants to various destinations in the cover of night earlier this year. It's expensive to relocate illegal border crossers. The city of El Paso in Texas has approved $2 million to spend on buses over the next 16 months. The El Paso City Council approved a contract with GoGo Charters for the relocation. The company has already received over $400,000 from the city. More than 550 illegal immigrants released from custody have been bussed out of El Paso. The city's manager calls the situation an emergency and said the city does not have money to deal with it. Last month, another official said the city receives reimbursement from the federal government, but he says that can take up to six months. Relocation is carried out by the city's Office of Emergency Management. 
And more on immigration. New York City says it's nearing its breaking point as illegal border crossers continue to arrive from Texas via bus. This as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sends planes of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, while Massachusetts considers potential plans if Texas follows suit. Next, we hear from an author, public speaker, and former immigration agent to learn more. Joining us now to discuss the transportation of illegal immigrants is Victor Avila. He's a retired special agent with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and he was part of this principal investigative arm of the Department of Homeland Security. Great to speak with you today, Victor. Thanks for having me back. Illinois has recently called in the National Guard to handle illegal immigrants bust in from Texas, and Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot wants federal money taken away from Texas and given to her city to help with the arrivals. How do we make sense of all this? It just tells me that uh, these, these uh, sanctuary cities and sanctuary states really are not um, in tune or care about the actual illegal aliens. I think they care more about the funding that they could make off of this situation. And really what it has really become is just political. It's not really solving the issue. But let's not forget that this has been happening for the last two years under this uh, the Biden administration where these individuals have been taken by airplane and buses. But for some reason, because the, when the Biden administration does it, it's okay. As soon as a Republican transports them, then they have a problem with it. And then they try to exploit it by trying to get federal funds for their cities. So speaking of this transportation, what do you make of Texas Governor Greg Abbott sending two buses of illegal immigrants near Vice President Kamala Harris's Washington residence? Listen, I've been saying it since it started that um, it, I agree in the sense that it has woken up people in these uh, in these cities and these uh, this part of the country that maybe have not been uh, aware really of what's happening at the border. And uh, you know, the Martha Vineyard's uh, situation was 50 illegal aliens. That's it, and they're already overwhelmed, and they say they don't want them there. And this is what the border towns have been facing for a long time. And so, um, although I agree with that and the awareness that it's bringing, ultimately, my, um, my solution to this is to have border security at the border and to avoid all these political shenanigans, if you will. I want to see border security enforced. I want our immigration laws to be enforced. I want our constitution to be abide by, um, and I want the protection of our sovereignty. Can you give us a little bit more specifics on what you mean by enforcing border laws? Well, because it's completely lawlessness right now at the border. Uh, you have illegal aliens walking into this country, the ones that are turning themselves in uh, and being accepted by the Border Patrol, the National Guard, whoever's down there and allowed, allowed to walk in, ignoring the process that we have in place, the legal immigration process, the um, asylum criteria that is our own criteria is being ignored. Um, and, and so this, this administration is putting all of that aside. There is no policy. There is no enforcement of any kind. There are very few prosecutions, if any, of coming into this country illegally. We have a, uh, an, uh, an immigration act with laws and the, the U.S. Code of 8 U.S.C. 1325 to uh, prosecute people for coming into this country illegally. And on the side of that, we have to remember the ones that do not want to be detected and the smuggling part of it, which has grown tremendously because not everyone that's coming into this country wants to be detected. 
You touched on asylum and also border enforcement. Let's look at the big picture here. What does Mexico have to do with this? This is a, that's a great question because um, no one seems to want to uh, hold Mexico accountable for their role in this. Remember, uh, the individuals all other than the Mexican nationals are illegally present in Mexico as well. And Mexico, I think, is being complicit in allowing these illegal aliens to continue to transit through their country and allowing to come up north to uh, our southern border. We must hold Mexico accountable for them to do their immigration enforcement in their country. Victor Avila, retired special agent with ICE, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. The tentative rail deal is one win for the Biden administration among a series of transportation woes. NTD's Jessica Beatty looks at the issues with trains, planes, and automobiles that have dogged Biden since taking office. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is calling a tentative deal reached between the rail industry and union representatives Thursday mutually beneficial. The deal helped divert what could have been a major crisis on U.S. railways. If they weren't working, America simply wouldn't function. So we owe them a great deal. The deal comes at a cost that could soon trickle down and increase prices for travelers and consumers. The deal gives rail workers a 24% pay bump over the next five years, along with paid time off and $5,000 in bonuses. Union members still have to vote on it. While some union leaders have praised the deal, veteran rail worker Hugh Sawyer isn't too impressed. I'm not particularly thrilled with what's in here. Yeah, it sounds great. Oh, you get this pay raise. Uh, uh, but keep in mind, we've been without this uh, uh, contract for three years. At best, it's going to keep up with inflation. The deal will go to union members for a vote after a cooling off period of several weeks. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has also been struggling with flight issues like cancellations, delays, and a nationwide pilot shortage. Back in May, Buttigieg told senators he was trying to speed up approving workforce development grants, which might increase the number of pilots. Then in July, he said they were working on staffing issues with air traffic control. But by August, he said they were working on a more achievable goal, refunding passengers for canceled flights. And last but not least, pain at the pump. Gas prices nearly doubled from the time Biden took office until June this year. There have been various explanations like COVID-19, Russia's war in Ukraine, and Biden's policies. He campaigned on phasing out fossil fuels and put a moratorium on new oil and gas drilling leases. Now officials are pushing electric vehicles as a solution. But whether EVs can help ease transportation woes or make them worse remains to be seen. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. In other news, the White House appears to dismiss Chinese land purchases near U.S. military bases as a homeownership issue. This was after a reporter pressed the National Security Council spokesman on the issue. Here's more. During the White House press briefing on Tuesday, Al Jazeera reporter Kimberly Halkett asked John Kirby, the National Security Council coordinator, the following question. I'm wondering, uh, given the fact that uh, known adversary, in the case China, uh, foreign buyers are buying up U.S. real estate, in some case farms around military installations, is this on the administration's radar and what is being done perhaps to study this or to protect Americans from making sure that homes remain affordable and so on. The reporter pointed out that Chinese investors were the most active buyers of U.S. real estate last year among foreigners. 
Earlier this year, a Chinese company headed by a Chinese Communist Party official invested in a corn mill in Grand Forks, North Dakota. The land was within 15 miles of the Grand Forks Air Force Base, which houses sensitive drone, satellite, and surveillance technology. Here's how Kirby responded to the question. I think the question of home ownership is a little bit out of my, out of my swim lane, but... but national security issue, particularly when it comes to around military installations. What I will tell you is that uh, the president has been uh, nothing but clear about our concerns about Chinese uh, unfair trade practices and economic practices. About trade. I, I understand that, ma'am. But I buying up land around uh, military installations. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm probably not the right person to ask about home ownership here in the United this States. Isn't about home ownership. This is about buying up land around military installations. Is that a concern to this administration? Lawmakers from both parties have voiced concern over Chinese land purchases near military installations. Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner, a Democrat, said in July that we should be seriously concerned about Chinese investment in locations close to sensitive sites such as military bases around the U.S. Republican Senators Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz have introduced a bill to restrict such purchases. Turning now to the FBI raid, a federal judge appointed a special master on Thursday to review materials the FBI seized from former President Trump's home. Senior Judge Raymond Deary will serve as an independent arbiter. He is tasked with deciding if any of the seized documents are privileged and should be off-limits to federal investigators. Deary was the only candidate for the role that both the Justice Department and Trump's legal team agreed on. The DOJ previously argued that Trump lacked standing to ask for the appointment of a special master because the records taken belonged to the government. They also said Trump doesn't have a valid claim to executive privilege because the DOJ is within the executive branch. But those arguments were rejected. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon also rejected the Justice Department's bid to resume its criminal investigation into classified documents seized in the raid. Now the DOJ plans to appeal. Trump maintains he did no wrong and has repeatedly stated that as president, he had a standing declassification order on materials taken to Mar-a-Lago. He has been ordered to pay the costs for the special master. The Justice Department was opposed to the special master inspecting records with classified markings. Judge Cannon disagreed and has directed Deary to prioritize classified documents in his review. The special master has been given a deadline of November 30th to complete his work. Over to COVID-19 vaccine mandates, the Marine Corps has quietly rolled back penalties for Marines seeking religious exemptions. It comes after the Navy made a similar move. It means that Marines will potentially no longer have to worry about losing their jobs or missing out on promotions over requesting vaccine exemptions. The new guidance was quietly posted online on Wednesday. The memo is in response to a Florida judge's decision. The judge ruled that the Marine Corps can't take action against those seeking religious exemption from the COVID-19 vaccines. But the memo also says that if the judge's decision is later nullified, then the previous restrictions will return. The Pentagon Inspector General also expressed concern about how the Department of Defense is handling the religious freedom of service members in regards to the COVID-19 vaccine. He wrote in a letter to the defense secretary saying that the military could be violating federal law and military service policies. On to social media. Elon Musk is still fighting to get out of his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. That's after Twitter filed a lawsuit to try to force the billionaire to follow through with his commitment. On Thursday, Musk's legal team filed a public version of updated counterclaims against the company. 
The amended argument draws on whistleblower allegations that there were security and privacy issues at Twitter. Former head of security Mudge Zatko testified that Twitter executives were warned of the insecurities but failed to act. He also alleged that Twitter misled Musk and the public about the number of bots on the platform. Musk made that issue central to his effort to exit the acquisition of Twitter, but shareholders are holding him to it. Twitter has pushed back on Zatko's allegations. He was fired from the company earlier this year. The case between Twitter and Musk is set to go to trial next month. And just ahead, this year marks 100 years since seven states divided up waters of the Colorado River. But the region has changed dramatically since then, and things aren't going so smoothly. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. At least 600,000 pieces of artwork were looted from Jewish people by Nazis during World War II. A new law in New York will require museums to identify looted artwork. With the last generation of Holocaust survivors fading, the original owners of the art aren't here to reclaim them. But for their descendants, those pieces of art might be a tangible connection to their past. The new law was signed in early August. It requires museums to put up signs identifying pieces looted by Nazis from 1933 through 1945. This law is part of an effort to ensure the public is educated about the Holocaust. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City identified 53 works out of its collection of 1.5 million as pieces once stolen during the Nazi era. The museum is in the process of designing signs for the artwork. From art to tech, the U.S. is looking to become competitive again in the realm of high-power lasers. And today's Andrew Thomas reports on the soon-to-be most powerful laser in the country. This is Zeus, short for zettawatt equivalent ultra-short pulse laser system. At the height of its power, Zeus will be a three-petawatt laser. Three petawatts is 3,000 times more powerful than the, uh, the U.S. Um, power grid. And... Uh, Three petawatts is three with 15 zeros after it. The University of Michigan was awarded $18.5 million by the National Science Foundation to build Zeus. Initially, the facility will host research teams that use a fraction of the laser's full power. The program will gradually ramp up, and they plan to begin Zeus's signature experiments next year. We're going to be uh, studying a range of different um, physics with Zeus. So this will vary from studying how we can accelerate particles. Particle accelerators and light sources have a huge uh, range of applications across science, technology and engineering and medicine. Scientists plan to primarily study extreme plasmas with Zeus, a state of matter in which electrons have enough energy to escape atoms, creating a sea of charged particles. Nearly all of the seen universe is made of plasma. So late in 2023, uh, we'll be looking to have the first users coming in for the three petawatt experiments. And um, in about a month, we'll be making the first call for proposals on the laser system. The experiment should shed more light on how the universe operates at the subatomic level. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Over to the western U.S., states along the Colorado River are under pressure to use less water, and the river itself isn't making it to the sea. And today's Andrew Thomas brings us an in-depth analysis of the factors contributing to the problem. A severe drought has gripped the southwestern U.S., reducing river flow. What's more, 
people continue to move to this part of the country. Arizona, Utah, and Nevada all rank among the top 10 fastest growing states. The challenges on the Colorado River are plainly evident today. We know that because the river hasn't run regularly to the sea in most years in the last half century. 100 years ago, seven states divided the waters of the Colorado River. The agreement is known as the Colorado River Compact, but it's struggling to hold up. A water policy researcher explains. There were you know, two main failings of the Colorado River Compact as negotiated. The, the first was who it left out. A treaty guarantees Mexico a small portion of the river each year. Some Native American tribes still do not have legal water rights. Many are in court or in negotiations for settlements. Others lack the infrastructure to even use their water. The other problem is that there isn't enough water to go around. Temperatures have gone up in all seasons, and the warming makes the atmosphere a thirstier sponge that wants to draw water away from plants, soils, snow, and the river itself. And so less of the precipitation that feeds the river actually makes it into the river. Meanwhile, cities and industries have boomed, which increases demand. We won't go back to some golden era of the 20th century. We're sort of stuck with a new shifting, we can't even call it a normal. It's going to be something we'll have to keep adapting to as we go. Now, states are facing both voluntary and mandatory cutbacks. Most recently, federal officials asked states to come up with a plan to reduce water use by about 15% next year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any feedback or news tips for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, a heartbroken father seeking justice for his one-year-old. He says the baby could have survived were it not for China's strict COVID-19 lockdown orders. More and more Chinese people are standing up and saying no to the Chinese Communist Party's COVID-19 lockdown policies. They're taking action and fighting back. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. Welcome back. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson says the Chinese regime will impose sanctions on the CEOs of Boeing Defense and Raytheon over their involvement in Washington's latest arms sales to Taiwan. The sanctions are in response to the State Department's approval of military equipment sales to Taiwan. Those include 60 anti-ship missiles and 100 air-to-air missiles. The Pentagon announced the package after China's aggressive military drills around Taiwan. The drills followed a visit last month by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She is the highest-ranking U.S. official to travel to Taipei in decades. The foreign ministry spokesperson did not explain what the sanctions would entail or how they would be enforced. China previously sanctioned Raytheon, Boeing Defense, and others involved in arms sales to Taiwan. Friday's announcement marks the first time Beijing imposed sanctions against specific individuals from these companies. A grieving father mourns the loss of his one-year-old child. He says the baby could have survived were it not for China's strict lockdown orders. NTD's Juliet Song has more on what happened. A father is seeking justice for his one-year-old son. 
The child died after failing to get emergency care under Chinese authorities' strict COVID-19 lockdown orders. The father is from Xinjiang, a region in northwestern China. His city has been put under lockdown for over a month because of local virus cases. Under those orders, residents are banned from leaving their homes. But one day last month, he found his son was falling ill. He called the emergency hotline. I was told no local hospital will accept patients right now, and the staffer asked me to contact the hospital by myself. The father called all local hospitals, but none of them were taking patients because of lockdown orders. At the time, my son was really in critical condition, so I rushed into a car in our local community with my son in my arms. But he died on the way to the hospital, and the hospital didn't even allow us in without a negative test for COVID-19. I tried to force my way into the hospital. But it was too late. Doctors told the father the child could have survived if they had arrived 10 minutes earlier. Following the baby's death, the father couldn't even find a place to temporarily store his son's body. Hospitals told him they didn't have morgues open. Funeral homes said they were under quarantine. The desperate father had to take his son directly to a crematorium. I was only allowed to see my son one last time after begging staffers at the crematorium. My son had medical gauze around his head. His eyes and mouth weren't completely shut. The crematorium told him they didn't even gather the ashes of the child because he was too small. The heartbroken father posted the story on social media. But in less than three minutes, local authorities told him to remove his post. The father is now calling for an investigation into those could be held responsible for his son's death. Juliet Song, NTD News. More on China, the prolonged lockdowns and the authorities' broken promises finally irritated residents and triggered their fighting back. And local authorities, instead of trying to solve the problem, created more attention. NTD's Tiffany Meyer from China in Focus has the story. In southwest China, protests broke out over lockdown orders in the city of Guiyang. Authorities there are imposing stricter health controls. But the prolonged lockdowns are getting worse with residents complaining about a lack of food and supplies. As those complaints grow, a number of residents organized and tried to break down a barrier set up by police. But the police sent more control workers onto the scene. Locals said that later, authorities took control of their community the same night and locking residential buildings and stationing armed police to guard the gates to the area. Beyond that, another protest sparked after authorities went back on a promise to lift lockdown orders in Shenzhen City. Residents from the Chinese tech hub say they are fed up with what they describe as endless lockdowns. Some of them gathered asking officials to remove the mandates. According to locals who participated, the crowd saw a turnout of around 20 to 30,000 people. One resident explained that an official noticed that the lockdown was set to lift off, but didn't. Video shows many in the crowd chanting, no lockdowns. To control the situation, authorities dispatched around 200 SWAT members, along with troops in camouflage and joint community defense workers. Authorities did not explain why they extended the city's lockdown. A local Chinese Communist Party leader went to the scene and said the lockdown may end after two more rounds of mass COVID-19 testing for locals. 
Coming up, as the European Union struggles with an energy crisis, an official from Russia's gas giant makes a comment about the United States. And keeping track of Ukraine's orphans proves challenging as the war continues. Officials are worried about the lack of records for displaced children. Find out more right here on NTD News. Russia's foreign ministry says that if the United States supplies Kyiv with longer-range missiles, Washington would be a direct party in the conflict. The Russian government is saying that if the United States starts supplying Ukraine with longer-range missiles for its war effort, that it would represent a red line for Moscow. These are destroyed and abandoned tanks seen by Reuters in the town of Izum, a major logistics hub recently retaken by Ukrainian troops, Z-symbols used by Russian forces to identify themselves. Russian forces in eastern Ukraine are digging in and fortifying their defenses. According to a Ukrainian regional official, who said it would be difficult for Ukrainian troops to repeat their recent rapid advances. Speaking on Thursday, a spokesperson for Russia's foreign ministry said that if the U.S. did cross that red line and supply longer-range rockets, that Washington would become a direct party to the conflict and that Russia, quote, reserves the right to defend its territory. The U.S. currently supplies Ukraine with rockets that can hit targets up to 50 miles away and hasn't said publicly whether it will send rockets that can hit twice that range or more. More on the Russian military. Russian nuclear-powered submarines fire cruise missiles in the Arctic. Their defense ministry says the drills are designed to test Moscow's readiness for a possible conflict in its northern waters. The drills took place in the Chukchi Sea, an eastern stretch of the Arctic Ocean that separates Russia from Alaska. Russia sees its vast Arctic territory as a vital strategic interest and has been building up its military capabilities in the region for years. During the drills, two nuclear-powered submarines fired anti-ship cruise missiles and hit targets at a distance of 250 miles. Moscow has continued a program of high-profile military exercises, even as the bulk of its land forces are engaged in the military conflict in Ukraine. Earlier this month, it conducted scaled-down war games in the Russian Far East, with some 50,000 troops taking part. A top official from Russia's state-owned natural gas giant weighs in on the European energy crisis. He says the U.S. is benefiting from the situation. The U.S. became one of the main beneficiaries of the current situation. Compressed natural gas from the U.S. was unable to compete at the European market under stable circumstances due to the high prime costs as well as large-shale gas carbon footprint. Today, we see a substantial growth of natural gas shipments from the U.S. to Europe. The deputy chairman of Gazprom added that the situation is only going to get worse and that, quote, European leadership is in no rush to take constructive measures to overcome the crisis. Russia has choked off the supplies of cheap natural gas in response to Western sanctions on the country. For years, the European Union has depended on Russia's natural gas to run factories, generate electricity and heat homes. Now, many European governments are desperately searching for new energy supplies as household utility bills rise. Many economists say a recession is on the way. Germany has taken control of three Russian-owned oil refineries in the country. It's Berlin's latest effort to stabilize the local energy market amid sanctions against Russia. 
German officials say the move covers the companies Rosneft Deutschland and RN Refining and Marketing. Rosneft is one of Germany's largest oil processors, owning about 12% of the country's refining capacity. The European Union declared a ban on Russian oil imports by the end of 2022, even without another source of cheap energy. Moscow retaliated. In late August, Russian energy company Gazprom suspended gas supplies through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Concerns are rising about possible winter heating shortages. Brussels has proposed a windfall profits tax on energy companies to protect consumers from soaring energy prices. Other proposals include a call to cut electricity consumption in EU member countries. As the war in Ukraine drags on, keeping track of the nation's orphans is challenging. Officials say a lack of government coordination is part of the problem. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. 12-year-old Ukrainian Tanya is autistic and can't speak. She and her caregiver play in the gardens of an orphanage in Odessa. It's a moment of respite between the air raid sirens that have become routine. We now know how to handle it, but it is so sad. I wish we had never learned how to handle it, though now it is getting better. Children now know where to go and that it is needed in order to save their lives. Ukraine is facing difficulties tracing children displaced by the war. Any attempt to track people fleeing an invasion is challenging. But the United Nations is concerned about the lack of record keeping. Many of the children at Tanya's orphanage fled the country with family members, but not all were able to. She lives in her own world. Nothing bothers her. If someone takes her by the hand and leads her, it means she needs to follow. And you do the same with other daily tasks. You need to take her to eat. She will never do anything by herself. She always needs the supervision of an adult. Ukraine says it's working to resolve the problems. They say there were more than 100,000 children in their network at the beginning of the invasion. Ukraine's Commissioner for Children's Rights says coordination needs to be improved. The commissioner's office also says it has no information on the more than 4,700 children sent away from orphanages under Russian occupation in Luhansk, Donetsk, and Kherson since the war began. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A cast of Ukrainian dancers are rehearsing a new production, and their director is Russian. NTD's Andrew Thomas brings us what he says about the ballet and why he got involved. These performers are part of the United Ukrainian Ballet, a company of 60 Ukrainian refugee dancers, technicians, and creatives. The company was formed to give these dancers who had to flee the war, uh, to leave their homes and to leave their jobs, to give them a job, to give them something to do, and uh, to rehearse, to dance. Alexei Rodmansky was born in Russia and lived in Ukraine. He's working with them for a new interpretation of the classic ballet, Giselle. Giselle is a dramatic story about love and death and uh, forgiveness. And uh, it is relevant. It is it's a beautiful story to show the strengths of, the, of these dancers. Rotmansky was a principal dancer in Ukraine, Canada, and Denmark. And he worked as a director in Russia, an artist in residence in the US. He was working on a new production in Russia when the conflict began. 
I got a call from my wife from New York saying that the Kiev, the city where uh, my family lives and my wife's family lives, is bombed by Russia. I felt the world crushing and uh, I, had, I had no choice. I had to leave the country that commits such a crime. Rotmansky says the United Ukrainian Ballet gives the dancers a way to tell the world that Ukraine is strong and Ukrainian culture lives on. The United Ukrainian Ballet is performing Giselle at the London Coliseum Theater until September 17th. Ticket profits will go to the DEC Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal and the United Ukrainian Ballet Foundation. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, some British members of parliament have expressed concerns about Chinese leader Xi Jinping being invited to the Queen's funeral. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. Good to have you back with us. Heavy overnight rains and floods swept through several towns in the Marche region of central Italy. At least 10 people were killed and four are still missing. Flash floods swamped several towns along the Adriatic coast. Heavy mud covered stores and roads, damaging cars and infrastructure. Residents are clearing debris from the streets and taking destroyed items out of homes and stores. In some villages, water and phone services were down. Search efforts are now underway for those still missing, including a mother and her two children. The precipitation last night reached over 15 inches within three hours. That's about a third of the amount of rain that normally falls throughout a year in the region. Italy has just endured a severe drought during the summer, so the ground is too dry to absorb much water, which contributed to the severe flooding. Now we head to France, where air traffic controllers are on strike. It's causing a new wave of disruptions in European air travel. Hundreds of flights have been canceled, affecting thousands of passengers. Europe's biggest airline, Ryanair, has called off 420 flights. Most of them were scheduled to fly over France. 80,000 passengers now have to change their travel plans. Also, EasyJet has cut more than 70 flights. Air France is only running 45% of its short and medium-range flights, as well as 90% of its long-haul flights. The French Civil Aviation Authority is working with the European air travel regulator to help carriers avoid the country's airspace. The 24-hour strike was led by a local air traffic control union. Their bid for higher wages amid high inflation has met with failure. In the past few months, similar strikes and staff shortages have affected multiple European airlines and canceled thousands of flights. In the UK, some members of Parliament say the invitation to Chinese officials to the Queen's funeral should be withdrawn. Seven parliamentarians have been sanctioned by Beijing for criticizing its human rights record in Xinjiang. They point out that human rights abusers like Russia, Belarus and Burma were not invited. A group of MPs and peers sanctioned by China have expressed serious concerns about China's representatives being invited to the Queen's funeral. Senior Tory MPs Tim Loughton and Sir Ian Duncan Smith wrote this week to the Common Speaker and Lord Speaker, calling it extraordinary that Chinese representatives should have received an invitation. 
The letter, also signed by crossbench peer Lord Alton and Labour peer Baroness Kennedy, pointed out that human rights abusers in Russia, Belarus and Myanmar are not invited. The parliamentarian said, Given that the United Kingdom Parliament has voted to recognise the genocide committed by the Chinese government against the Uyghur people, it is extraordinary that the architects of that genocide should be treated in any more favourable way than those countries who have been banned. Sarian reportedly told Politico it was Project Kowtow all over again. The Chinese government is reportedly considering sending a delegation to the funeral on Monday. The South China Morning Post reported Vice Chairman Wang Jishen is expected to attend while Chairman Xi Jinping is currently attending a summit in Uzbekistan. In response to the letter from MPs and peers, Downing Street said it was for the palace to decide the invite list and as a convention those we have diplomatic relations with are invited in the main. The UN recently published an assessment of human rights concerns linked with the Xinjiang region of China. It concluded serious human rights violations have been committed there. As Foreign Secretary and during her summer-long campaign to become Prime Minister, Liz Truss pushed for a hard line against Beijing. Earlier this month, Tory MP Tom Tugendhat, now Security Minister, urged the government to look at banning the import of all cotton products produced in the Xinjiang as a response to the country's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. According to media reports, China's official delegation is expected to be barred from attending the Queen's lying in state ahead of the state funeral. Common Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle will prevent them from entering Westminster Hall while seven MPs and peers remain sanctioned by Beijing. According to a parliamentary source, Sir Lindsay was upholding his position on barring Chinese state officials while the parliamentarians remain sanctioned. Last September, Sir Lindsay and his counterpart in the upper chamber, Lord McFall, blocked the Chinese ambassador to the UK from visiting Parliament. A House of Commons spokesman said, we do not comment on security matters, while the Speaker's spokesman also declined to comment. Two sanctioned Tory MPs, Sir Ian Duncan Smith and Tim Lawton, have been raising concerns about the delegation's possible attendance, saying it was extraordinary they had received an invite despite Russia, Belarus and Myanmar being excluded. A meteor was seen soaring through the night sky over Scotland. The bright streak of light was captured above the rooftops in the Scottish town of Paisley, west of Glasgow. The eyewitness who captured the video said that she couldn't believe that she saw the meteor and managed to catch it on camera. The meteor was initially thought to be space debris by the UK Meteor Network, who received nearly 800 reports of the fireball on Wednesday night. A meteor is a streak of light in the sky caused by a space rock entering the Earth's atmosphere and then burning up. Denmark will not offer those under the age of 50 COVID-19 vaccine boosters this autumn and winter. The Danish Health Authority announced it will focus on protecting those who are most at risk of becoming severely ill from COVID-19. The agency wrote on its website that people aged under 50 are well protected against becoming severely ill from COVID-19, as a very large number of them have already been vaccinated and have previously been infected with COVID-19. 
Danish health officials also explicitly dropped any pretense to halt the spread of COVID-19, saying the purpose of vaccination is not to prevent infection. Instead, vaccinations aim to prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death. Denmark was one of the first countries in the world to stop giving COVID-19 vaccines to healthy children. Since September 1st, only children who are at particularly higher risk can receive a vaccine. And just ahead, the North American International Auto Show is underway in Detroit. This year, the show features an electric muscle car and the world's first flying bike. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. An auto show in Detroit features some of the latest concept cars. This year, the world's first flying bike is also making its U.S. debut. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on the new vehicles. One of the stars of the North American International Auto Show lineup is the Dodge Charger Daytona SRT EV. The vehicle is being touted as the world's first all-electric muscle car. The two-door coupe features a four-seat interior, multi-speed transmission, 16-inch digital display, and an addition called the R-Wing. It's got this great feature called the R-Wing, so it's actually a pass-through. You can put your hand through the grill, uh, and the, the, it's meant to manage aerodynamic. Dodge wasn't the only automaker displaying concept cars. Lincoln featured its Lincoln Model L100 and Star Concept SUV. Both vehicles boast a see-through front, wraparound seating, and reclined lounge posture. The Model L100 even features an all-digital floorboard. Designers say it's meant to help put passengers in a positive state of mind. It communicates the future. It tells a, a story about where we think you know, luxury mobility will go. Um, we use the mindset of bringing back the idea of romance of travel, right? So it, you know, travel now is an inconvenience, and we want to bring that idea of you know, the journey is the reward, not the destination. The world's first flying bike also made its U.S. debut at the show. Japanese startup Airwinds Technologies created the X Turismo hover bike. The vehicle is capable of flying for 40 minutes and reaching 60 miles per hour. You know, it was exhilarating. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's not vicious, right? It's, it's, uh, it's comfortable. I mean, it was really comfortable taking off and landing. So there's no like jerky jerk. It's literally very, very smooth. And I can't wait for the future. I'm so excited. The hover bike is already on sale in Japan. The startup's founder and CEO said plans are underway to sell a smaller version of the X Turismo hover bike in the U.S. in 2023. The estimated price for the American version is $777,000. The company hopes to reduce the cost to $50,000 for a smaller electric model by 2025. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. NASA is sharing highlights from explorations made by its Perseverance Mars rover. The rover is now well into its second scientific campaign. The Mars rover is collecting rock core samples from an area long considered to be a top prospect for finding signs of ancient microbial life. The rover has collected four samples from an ancient river delta since July and has so far collected 12 scientifically compelling rock samples. Perseverance is currently investigating the Delta's sedimentary rocks. During its first science campaign, the rover explored the crater's floor, finding igneous rock, which is formed from magma. Scientists on the project say the mission is proceeding extremely well and that they are making great progress in understanding the geologic history of the crater. Do you remember visiting country relatives as a child and eating peaches? Have they disappeared from our fields and diets? What are we missing? Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. 
The good news is that the peach season is upon us and goes through to September. There's no better time to take advantage of their bounty than right now. These sweet and tasty seasonal fruits are an excellent snack or dessert. For those among us who struggle to eat our quota of fruits and vegetables, the taste of fresh peaches makes it easy. Peaches are a versatile flavor addition to sweet and savory dishes alike, but this season is relatively short, so don't delay. You'll recognize peaches in the supermarket and farmer's markets by their warm, fuzzy skins and golden color. The fresher peaches are, the more nutrients you get from them. By supporting local growers, you are getting maximum benefit as fresh and local is best. They are loaded with vitamin C, antioxidants, potassium and fiber. They are perfect for a health conscious consumer because they're low in fat and have no sodium or cholesterol. Peach nutrients offer stronger immunity, better heart health and improved digestion and gut health. Because of their high fiber content, you'll feel full for longer. Many of the antioxidants and fiber are found just under the skin. Peaches continue to ripen after picking. A firm peach may take four to five days to ripen at room temperature. Add peaches to kale or spinach salads, mix into a yogurt topping or add to a smoothie or salsa. You can even brown them under the grill and serve them with homemade ice cream sweetened with honey. Try them with muesli for breakfast or as a snack in your work or school lunch. Peaches will retain their nutritional value when frozen, so worry not, you can enjoy them after the season ends. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 